This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intricasso. With me today to discuss the nation's response to the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and context of healthcare ethics is Dr. Charles Binkley, the Director of Bioethics at the Santa Clara University's Marcoulis Center for Applied Ethics. Dr. Binkley, welcome to the program. Thank you, David. It's really good to be with you today. I, I have to say, Dr. Binkley, I, I particularly appreciate your time since, of course, California is once again uh, experiencing another uh, unprecedented wildfire season. So thank you uh, for making oh, the time. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a real privilege to be on the show. Dr. Binkley's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. On background, our nation's response to the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic has been, I would characterize, as disastrous. For example, as has been widely reported, approximately one-third of all COVID-19-related deaths have been among nursing home facility residents. African Americans have been more than twice as likely as non-Hispanic whites to die of COVID-19 complications. Inadequately protected healthcare providers, now conveniently termed heroes in a war against COVID, as if the virus will one day surrender or can be defeated, have been required to work in lethal environments. As for service workers, moreover minorities, instead of recognizing their due a livable wage, health insurance, and or sick leave, we term them essential workers and give them a hand clap. As for the federal government's response, the president's sensitivity apparently goes so far as stating it is what it is, that the Urban Dictionary defines as a business phrase that can be literally translated as, and pardon my French, fuck it. As for the Congress's response, 75% of direct and indirect CARES Act monies went to corporations. Any forthcoming or additional federal response must include, per the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell's prerequisite, COVID-related legal immunity protection or legislation consistent with what over 20 states have adopted to date. Our response to the pandemic in sum brings to light the chasm that continues to exist between medical ethics that requires providers to support the betterment of public health and a responsibility to seek policy reforms that are in the best interest of patients and how we deliver health care that is substantially profit motive dominated. I'll add, in my nearly 25 years doing healthcare policy work in D.C., I never once attended a meeting or participated in a conversation where the speaker discussed or made reference to, for example, John Rawls's Veil of Ignorance or Tikkum Olam. With me again to discuss the woeful state of healthcare ethics in the time of COVID is again Dr. Charles Binkley. So uh, with that as a somewhat lengthy introduction, uh, Dr. Binkley, I don't think I'm going out on a limb and assuming you'd largely agree, federal policymakers have, to understate it, done a poor job of living up to their ethical obligations in responding to the pandemic. So my question is, in your view, what generally accounts for this? Well, David, I think from a public policy perspective, many of the issues have become overly politicized. So, for instance, things like mask wearing, school reopenings, how to reopen the economy, have not always been based solely on the best medical or scientific principles, 
but they've been politicized. Take, for instance, the initial recommendations from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention about school reopening. Those were revised based on the administration's desire to somehow make them more applicable or to open up things more aggressively. So science hasn't always uh, been the most respected voice uh, in the pandemic. Uh, Dr. Fauci has emerged as really a hero for what is truth. And so you have to consider the perspective of physicians in making recommendations. And a physician or a scientist in general is going to base recommendations on doing good and avoiding harm. That's really the ethical principle of medicine. And so, for instance, when the American Academy of Pediatrics made recommendations for school reopening, it's a very child-centric perspective, as well you would expect a group of pediatricians to speak from the perspective of children. And when you take the balance of school opening on the whole, it's far more advantageous to children for schools to be reopened, not only because of the intellectual benefit that schools provide, but all the other resources that schools provide for children besides traditional reading, writing, and arithmetic. Now, take, for instance, the number of hungry children who rely on schools for nourishment, the number of children with medical problems who rely on schools for their care, asthma screening, vision, dental care. You look at children with disabilities who really are dependent on their schools not only for learning, but also for occupational therapy, physical therapy. And those students not only are not progressing, in many instances, they're regressing during the pandemic when they're not in schools. You can't substitute the services that they were offered in person with remote learning. And it must be heartbreaking to those parents to see their children regress in this time. So really, the perspective of the most vulnerable in some ways has come to light uh, during the pandemic. When I think globally, about how ethics has affected the pandemic. It's really been this ethical quagmire. It's been one ethical issue after another. You know, at the most basic level, there have been questions of allocation of resources. You know, how do you allocate ventilators? And that question arose most poignantly in New York City as hospitals were overwhelmed. How do you triage patients? Um, and then a very unique question arose during this pandemic. And that is, how do you allocate personal protective equipment to practitioners? We really never faced the issue of allocating a resource among clinicians, among practitioners. Typically, it's been how do clinicians allocate resources to patients. But when you start thinking about how do you allocate a resource amongst each other, how do you ask a physician or a nurse or a physical therapist or respiratory therapist to deliver care without having optimal protection. And again, that, that's a very new question that we haven't really asked before. Very soon, hopefully very soon, we're gonna really be facing questions about allocations of vaccines and treatments. And, and not just the allocation of vaccines, but also ethical questions about vaccine development. And how does the public perceive that development? Are they going to trust the development? Are they gonna trust the science and the medicine? Or is that also going to be politicized in the same way that some treatments have been politicized? Again, the, I think the, the biggest, one of the biggest issues, one of the biggest ethical issues 
is that the voice of medicine has really been discounted uh, in a lot of the considerations during the pandemic. And then, of course, most, again, very clearly, ongoing health disparities have well been well known for a very long time, but they've really been brought into the spotlight uh, by the pandemic. Uh, probably the best known health disparity are among black patients and patients of color who've uh, died more often uh, than other patients from the virus. And when you go into the reasons behind this, many times it really is a substandard care that those patients receive relative to other patients. And some of that's because of the hospitals that they have to go to. Some of it's because of lack of private insurance. Some of it's because of lack of insurance at all. Uh, but certainly black patients have historically, and we've known this, have fared worse than white patients uh, in almost every health category. You know, as a cancer surgeon, it's very, very clear that those patients, black patients, are less often offered complex surgery that may be curative for their cancer. Uh, they many times don't even see a surgeon to consider surgery as a possibility. Uh, we've known this, but it's now coming to light and into full public view. And then I also think about other populations, for instance, our indigenous people, for whom the, uh, the Indian Health Service really hasn't provided the level of care that we would expect. It hasn't provided an adequate level of care, and so our indigenous people have died at a higher rate than other people. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I look at our prisoners and our prison system, and uh, physicians, healthcare workers, most everyone has known that healthcare in prisons is poor. It's lack of access. Uh, it's um, just lack of quality healthcare. And of course, that's been brought to light uh, also by the pandemic. So any number of niches, and again, you mentioned nursing homes earlier. People have known that nursing home quality care uh, isn't always the best. Uh, and many times infection control and prevention measures aren't in place in nursing homes or, or as robust as they should be. And again, that certainly, that was one of the first things that the pandemic highlighted was the lack of adequate care uh, and also the, the lack of adequate long-term care, both acute care, post-hospital and long-term care uh, that's available in this country. Thank you. So it is a long list, uh, obviously, of issues. I will say relative to the last you noted, uh, I'll just make reference to this uh, for listeners. There is an interesting piece by Andrew Cockburn in the most recent issue of Harper's Magazine uh, titled Elder Abuse, Nursing Homes, the Coronavirus, and the Bottom Line, uh, somewhat of a muckraking uh, essay or approach. Um, since I mentioned uh, this issue, and, and you did as well, uh, of um, limited supplies, you mentioned vents, but then PPE, What's your sense, since I did mention that uh, if we get in September another uh, COVID relief uh, package out of the Congress, uh, again, the Senate Majority Leader McConnell is insisting that first and foremost, there would be uh, a provision providing uh, legal immunity protection from provider organizations should, um, or not should, but when, rather, uh, a clinician uh, working there uh, acquires the uh, virus or is infected. Uh, what, what, what's your take on that? 
Well, so there, there are legal discussions around this topic, but when I come at it from an ethical perspective, I would always ask, you know, was there intentional negligence? You know, when you're, when you're a physician and there's simply nothing available, there's not the, the level of protection that you may need. So for instance, let's take an ICU physician who has to intubate a patient with COVID. Well, ideally you would have a very high level of respiratory protection for that procedure. But if that level is not available and you have to accept a lower level and everyone in the facility, the administrators have done due diligence to procure those things, they're simply not available. And as a provider, you're faced with the decision, do I care for this patient or not? And every physician that I know, and I, I hope every physician there is, would assume that personal responsibility for that patient and take that risk. So it really comes back to, in, in my mind, about has due diligence been done uh, to make sure that the highest level of protection possible is there. And, and I think that, you know, from an ethical perspective, if it has, then then the, the physician certainly, if he or she uh, becomes infected, uh, deserves this idea of social reciprocity. So you took a risk for the sake of humanity, and now we will uh, prioritize you in terms of treatment. Um, this, this idea has uh, persisted for a very long time in medicine, the idea that those who put themselves on the line and uh, face personal harm because of their role uh, will be prioritized for both treatments uh, and for ventilators if they need it and also for vaccines. And so you know, reciprocity, I think, is a very important principle there. Uh, and, and I would also, just thinking more broadly about our school's reopening, I would also say that teachers deserve that same level of social reciprocity uh, that physicians have enjoyed and nurses have enjoyed and healthcare workers, that if teachers go back to school uh, and schools reopen and they fall ill, I think that as, as a community, as a society, we uh, owe them uh, this benefit of social reciprocity and prioritization uh, if they were to need treatment. Okay, thank you. Let me ask, continuing with this uh, line, physicians, uh, so for example, Health Affairs uh, last Wednesday ran a brief essay citing efforts by physician organizations. For example, they cited White Coats for Black Lives, uh, so efforts uh, physicians are making to try and uh, meet their uh, ethical obligations. Uh, there was a piece, of, as way of another example, there was a piece effort in Massachusetts by physicians uh, registering uh, patients to vote. Uh, that's gone somewhat national as well. So physicians are making uh, individually efforts to try to meet uh, during this time of uh, the pandemic their ethical and moral obligations. What other opportunities or what other efforts do you think physicians should uh, prioritize? You did note, of course, uh, the substantial disparities or inequities in both infection and outcome uh, as it relates to COVID. But what else can do you think physicians ought to be attentive to? Well, well David, I think it really gets back to the moral nature of medicine. Uh, and so when I think about it, the idea of justice, uh, which is one of the cornerstones, one of the principal uh, pillars of medicine, and typically as a community of physicians, 
we've thought about justice as am I treating this patient in front of me the same way that I would treat any other patient uh, with the same problem who came to see me, the idea of one standard of care for all. But I think that we really have to start thinking about this more globally. We have to move beyond the one patient in front of me and we have to think about social determinants of health. And our obligation as physicians to all of society and to try to make sure that not just the patient in front of me, but all patients with this problem uh, are treated equally and are treated with the same level of care. And, and so I think that for, for medicine, it's a time of reckoning. It's a time of moral reckoning. And there's a little bit of the, there's the moral low bar, which is this is the minimum uh, requirement that I have to fulfill in order to stay out of trouble or to uh, be in compliance. And then there's the moral high bar. And it's really the moral high bar that physicians have traditionally lived up to and that society has expected. And what that says is that I'll lead a virtuous life and I'll lead a life that sets the example for society and I will protect the most vulnerable uh, and I will be a, a moral person myself. And there's been a bit of a decay in that calling. There's been a bit of decay in that nuanced portion of the profession. When we think of a profession, it typically, traditionally, historically, it's involved professing something. And for physicians, uh, it's involved professing the Hippocratic Oath, the oath that we will do good and avoid harm. Somehow, as medicine has become more corporatized and less personal, some of that mission, some of that moral impetus has been lost. And coming going along with that has been this notion that physicians have faced ongoing moral distress and ongoing moral injury, which is leading to burnout. And even before COVID, burnout was a huge problem among physicians. And, and I believe that really these things go hand in hand, that the way of overcoming burnout, the way of re-energizing the profession is really to reassume its moral standing. And that sometimes means exercising moral courage. And moral courage is exemplified by all of these things that you're talking about. But more so than not, it's exemplified by speaking up for what is wrong. And that can take any number of manifestations. You know, there's been in the last probably 15 years this drive toward a speak up culture in healthcare and really promoting the idea that if you see something that's wrong, you speak up. And it's been built around the idea of medical errors that you don't hide a medical error because you're afraid of being punished for it, but you bring it to light so that it can be examined and a systems approach can be taken to prevent it from happening again. But that veneer has been a little bit shattered and it's one of the other ethical issues or some of the other fallout from COVID. And that is physicians have spoken up about the lack of personal protective equipment or about the poor care patients were receiving in their systems. They've been terminated, they've been fired, gag orders have been placed. And so it, it, it really takes a lot of moral courage to stand up uh, in the midst of all of this, particularly when the corporation or the business part of medicine uh, doesn't want you to stand up and doesn't want you to take a moral stance. Thank you. Yes, in fact, um, this I'll mention this. So in prepping for this interview, I went to both the American Nurses Association and the AMA 
uh, to read through their uh, codes of ethics. And, and interestingly, although I can't say, speaking of your last point of, of corporatization of medicine, you cannot, as a, as a, as a, as anyone, go to their website and download, uh, these documents. They're not publicly freely available, which I have to say I found not surprising, but really somewhat shocking. I was able to fairly easily get the AMA Code of Medical Ethics principles, which are nine in number. And just to reinforce your comment, uh, one states that physicians have responsibility to seek changes in those requirements that are contrary to the best interests of patients. They have responsibility to participate in activities contributing to the improvement of the community and the betterment of public health and shall support access to medical care for all people. But going back to the, these being unavailable, uh, to anyone at, uh, the website of these large associations, let me ask, what's your sense of the extent to which the, uh, professional trade associations, again, I met, I named two, are living up to, uh, their responsibilities here. And, uh, as you know, <laughs> We've discussed this, and I did check, and it is the case still, that the American Medical Association uh, still to date on its website recognizes as its 19, as its 2006, rather, Nathan Davis Awardee, uh, uh, and the award is for outstanding contributions to promote uh, the betterment of public health, recognizes the 206th uh, recipient, uh, Dennis Hastert, who we know four years ago, uh, was convicted of crimes related to uh, his being a serial child molester while a high school wrestling coach. So uh, I, I do find it somewhat amazing and surprising that the AMA can at least uh, remove his name uh, from an annual award for the betterment of public health. If they can't do that, to what extent are they living up? So again, my question are these uh, trade and professional associations doing what they need to do? Well, I think that they also have to face a moral reckoning and really have to look at what are the core values of medicine. I think that uh, I think the membership has focused uh, and the efforts of these organizations, because of the demands of the membership, have really focused on reimbursement uh, in recent time, and they focused on issues of finance. And, and that's probably, on a granular level, an appropriate mission, but I, I think that the moral cause is much greater than that. And you have to think about things like uh, value-driven healthcare, and you have to think not just about our individual practitioners being uh, compensated or reimbursed at appropriate levels, but is healthcare being distributed fairly? And I think that's that's the moral cause here. Uh, and, and not just that, but also, are we making good use of our healthcare dollars? You know, this, this whole idea of overutilization, uh, where lots of things are being done that don't actually do a lot of good for patients. Things are being done under the guise of being good, which may well be harmful. You know, I, I think about cancer surgery and, you know, People with cancer are oftentimes desperate for anything. And, you know, sometimes people will do things that may not necessarily harm the patient, but its benefit to their overall survival and their overall good may be very, very small. 
And so I, I think those are the sorts of questions that need to be uh, asked. And those are the sorts of moral emphasis that uh, need to be focused on by these professional associations. Again, thinking not about our physicians making enough money, but rather thinking is healthcare being distributed in a way that's equitable. Thank you. I, I will uh, note just one important issue, and I was pleased to see it was cited in an essay or discussed in an essay, July 23rd, New England Journal, uh, titled Border Babies, Medical Ethics, and Human Rights in Immigration Detention Centers. That's an issue I have followed carefully, and it is actually shocking to the extent to which the professional trade associations have ignored this. Uh, uh, very troubling uh, policy and the effect health effects it's having on those immigrants um, uh, in their health while um, held in these detention centers. Let me go to, as, as sort of our, our last question, um, we'll have a new administration, a new Congress in January, uh, and health care policy reform is promising to be front burner, although interestingly, as an aside, I'll say that the Democrats last week managed to substantially ignore the subject, and I expect more or less the same from the Republican convention this week. Nevertheless, uh, it should be or remain uh, that we'll see much discussion next year. So this gets to my question, and I will use the phrase, and we've discussed this, Don Berwick had a June essay, a brief essay or comment viewpoint uh, in JAMA. He termed the moral determinants of health. So let me phrase it as that. Uh, what do you think uh, are primary um, and Don, of course, mentioned several examples. But what do you think are should be front burner or priority moral determinants of health as a new administration, new Congress take office uh, in January? Or how can the profession better live up to its ethical obligations, again, phrased uh, by Don as moral determinants? Right. I, I think that Dr. Berkowitz's list is is absolutely correct. I think he, he is absolutely on to the things that, that physicians, that the physician association should be involved with. But I think that for an administration, the number one thing uh, needs to be extending health care to as many as possible, but not just extending all health care, extending really good health care, health care that is high quality or high value. You know, we, we think about, um, again, all of the things, all the unnecessary procedures. When you look at cost of health care, it's driven really by two things. And one is by hospital fees, and the other is by physician fees. And so I think we have to start thinking about what goes on in hospitals. Are these the safest place for patients to be taken care of? You know, again, barring in my experience as a surgeon, many times patients uh, have a misunderstanding about what hospital care after surgery is. For instance, for joint surgery and uncomplicated appendectomies, studies have shown that it's safe to send patients home uh, right after those operations with appropriate home care, nurse visits, home physical therapy. And so shifting a lot of the care out of hospitals not only reduces the instance of very expensive hospital-acquired infections, but it also allows rehabilitation and recovery to take, care, take place in a home environment, which is much less expensive. That requires something of a culture shift for physicians and also a culture shift in expectations for patients. But those are some of the instances where we can provide more cost-effective, higher-value care for a greater number of people. 
the, the amount of money that healthcare costs now, providing that same quality, that same level for every person, there's just not enough money to do that. So we really have to rethink how healthcare is being delivered and then use that savings to extend healthcare, to extend healthcare for everyone. Thank you. So you're right. There is this, uh, it's, it's the conflict between expanding uh, coverage and access at the same time from a financial perspective, we could sustain uh, these programs, which we know, uh, for example, the Medicare program, as I've said previously, and nine of the last 11 years has been in the red or the hospital trust fund. So uh, Medicare's life from a financial perspective is in um, not, not a very stable or, or healthy, no pun, uh, situation. Um, so that, uh, Dr. Binkley, we're at about our time. I, I will, I, I think it would be helpful um, leaving aside federal policymakers, the, uh, you know, clinicians, the, the associations, I, I'd feel remiss. I'd like to just get this question in. What do you think the public should be demanding of, or sort of the, the, the more bottom-up uh, expectation or demand uh, patients should be seeking, other than, of course, of, <laughs> they're avoiding bankruptcy, uh, should expect or seek uh, when they have to interact in the healthcare setting? I think as a nation, our greatest opportunity, our greatest moral demand right now is to think about the common good above the individual liberty. We have to think about how do I protect my neighbor as I would want to be protected. The most basic level that comes from mask wearing is an example of social reciprocity. I wear a mask not just to protect myself, but also to protect my vulnerable neighbor. In the same way, I think we have to think about healthcare in that way, not just what can I get and what's best for me, but what's best for everyone, what's best for my neighbor. And that really is the way that we'll move forward because if these individual claims keep colliding with each other, we're simply gonna be caught and uh, in, in not able to move forward. But I think our focus, particularly in the midst of a pandemic, particularly in the midst of fires surrounding San Francisco, almost on every side, with climate change, we really have to think about the common good. And if we don't, I just don't think we're going to survive all the challenges that we must survive. Uh, yes, exactly right. Uh, and in fact, uh, Dr. Burke, of course, uh, that was one of his um, six bulleted items under moral determinants, and that has reversed the uh, effects of the climate catastrophe. So with that, Dr. Bindley, very much appreciate this overview the expectation is the pandemic or the infection rates will continue for quite a long while. Let's hope we can uh, develop a learning curve and do a better job incrementally at least, at least over, say, the next uh, year uh, period. So with that, again, uh, thank you so much for your time. Oh, David, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you today. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.